Hello, everyone, and happy Sunday. Welcome to season 10 of Be Her Talk with Selena Hill, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip-hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, I discuss race, politics, and culture. And of course, I give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave comments on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube, and I will read as many as I can throughout this show. Now, I'm super excited to be here with you all today to discuss the biggest stories of the week from Britney Spears' battle for freedom from her conservatorship to Tamir Rice's mom's accusations that activist Sean King has exploited Tamir Rice's murder for profit to the rise of track star Shakari Richardson. Now, later on in the show, former Assistant Attorney General of New Jersey and civil rights attorney Shavar Jeffries will join our show to unpack Derek Chauvin's 22 and a half year prison sentence and the next steps in the fight to transform the institution of policing in honor of George Floyd. Now, please remember to support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Be Her Talk. Your support through a small donation would help us to continue to support the issues that you care about. And now, without further ado, time to introduce my two correspondents for the day. First up, we have Evan Mastronardi, who is the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash and a Bronx organizer for Rank the Vote NYC. Well, I'm not sure if I can shoot, still use that title, but happy to have you. Thank you. Ranked choice voting in the primary has concluded, but still happy to be an organizer and happy as always to be a part of this show, the season finale. I'm honored to be a part of it. And yes, please follow Let's Not Be Trash podcast, place for multidimensional masculinity. Absolutely. Happy to have you back always, Evan. And yes, this is the season finale of Be Her Talk. We will be taking a, hi a hiatus for summer, but don't worry, we will be back. Okay, now we also have with us Michelle Hope, who is a sexologist, activist, and writer. How's it going, Michelle? I think Michelle is on mute. <laughs> I tell you, I, you know what? I do that all the time. But hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here on the season ending of your show. And let's get into it. Absolutely. So we're going to kick things off with the news roundup. Again, this is the time where we run down the stories that made us laugh, cry, or go on a profanity-laced Twitter rant, and maybe even block some of our friends. Evan, I'm going to throw it over to you. Well, thank you, Selena. And as we have seen throughout social media, really over the course of a few years now, as we know, Britney Spears has been under a conservatorship, which truly limits her financial independence, her ability to travel, her ability to have relationships, and also her ability to actually have kids. Yes, they part of her conservatorship would not let her even remove her IUD, even though she does have two children. In a, in a very, very significant 24-minute testimony, she talked about a life just without privacy that did not help her mental state, even though that was the initial uh, reason for her father putting it in place. So my first question to Michelle, actually, I have two parts. It'll be, do we think the stipulations of this conservatorship at this point in Britney's life from what you know is fair. And two, I'm gonna throw a little curveball here because the post asked something interesting. Do we think this type of treatment would have happened to a man? Well, I think there's a couple things here we have to remember. One, and this is really, really big, and, and, and Britney is a commodity. Uh, her fame, her, her performances, her talent, is making people money. So when people look at other people as commodities and not people, it is really, really easy to strip them, strip their rights away from them. In addition to that, what, what is the difference between a man or a woman? Well, in the United States, when it comes to parenting, we know that uh, most states oftentimes do not want mothers separated from their children. Does that make it fair? Absolutely not. I think that in this situation, there's a lot to be said on who has the right to decide what is right and wrong when it comes to parent rearing, as well as 
who is capable of being a parent. Um, you know, I think that Brittany has the ability to parent children. I do not think anybody should have their rights of their bodily autonomy taken away from them, especially when it comes to their reproductive rights. And that's exactly what we're seeing um, by her mentioning she has an IUD um, in place and cannot go to a doctor to have it removed. Also, I just want to throw in, thank you for that, Michelle. Uh, it, the Post mentioned that, for example, Robert Downey Jr. apparently at one point ended up in a neighbor's house drunk uh, with another child in bed just to show the disparity of perhaps someone else who needed a conservatorship or something at a point in their life, and it didn't end the same way. So again, this type of dynamic, I know all situations are different, but again, it seems like her uh, gender and parenting really comes into play here. Selena, I want to get your thoughts. Uh, do you think this is A, necessary at this point in her life? And B, do you think gender plays a role here? Well, you know, absolutely. To the point you and Michelle just made, we have so many examples of other male celebrities who have who have shown some type of mental breakdown or outbursts and who have not been placed under the same type of restrictions. You can even look at Kanye West. No one gave him a uh, like told him he can't have any more children. Right. And, and he's definitely shown how many outbursts. So I do think that it, I think it needs to be reevaluated. I mean, this conservatorship was first put in place. It was in 2008. Brittany was about 26 years old. And, um, you know, she had she had a breakdown. But I think 13 years later, we need to go back, analyze and see what would be the best way to act in her best interest. I will say this because I also have family members who have who struggle with mental health issues and cannot take care of themselves financially or in any other aspect. So, and it's a battle, right? Because a lot of times they'll, in their mind, they think they're totally fine, but we see, you know, we can see their demise. I think, you know, with, with Brittany, uh, a years ago, she had, well, I think it was like a $2.8 million net worth. Uh, her finances were in total shambles. Um, and since the conservatorship, she has been able to uh, acquire about $59 million in wealth. So it has benefited her in that way. But she's only getting, I believe, a $2,000 a week allowance. Mm -hmm. And there's so many restrictions. So I do, I, what I honestly want right now is to hear from her family, I know that her brother-in-law has spoke out and says and told the post, you know, this is an act of love for her own protection. And I do think that I, I definitely am interested in hearing what the family, particularly her father, wants to do moving forward now that she has spoken publicly, publicly about being freed from this conservatorship. And a shout out to uh, um, Stanley Fritz. I know he wrote a comment saying free Britney a little while ago. And also Amari Lewis left a comment via LinkedIn. Amari says mental illness is real, but it can be used to institutionalize people. Mm -hmm. I also, you know, real quick before we move on, I think a part of the complexity of this case has to do with the fact that conservatorships for adults are usually reserved for elderly people who can no longer uh, manage their own finances or take care of themselves. There is no precedented case law when it comes to somebody of this age. So when we're looking at what the courts are doing, they're really just figuring it out because there is not a statute for them to base uh, their findings or base their perspectives on in this particular case. This is not a normal case. But when you consider that Jamie Spears is making $16,000 a month as the head of the conservatorship, in addition to another $2,000 a month for his office space, you have to start to ask yourself, are they using Britney as a cash cow? Right. A lot of motivations here to be analyzed. And also, you bring up a good point about the precedent this might set. So I do think it's worthy of true meaningful analysis going forward uh, for her rights and for other people's legal rights going forward. Now, now to shift to other uh, types of behavior here, Chris Brown is in the news once again uh, for 
fighting, punching a woman in L.A., reportedly. And he has had just a long line of violence throughout his life. We know, of course, about the incident with Rihanna in 2009. Uh, his former uh, partner, Karuche, put a restraining order against him. Against him, there was a manager attack. I think he broke a window at one point in Good Morning America. This has followed him throughout his life. At this point, we have some we have some important questions to ask, even not just about the behavior, but about the coverage. So, a supporting Chris Brown perpetuates abuse. Let's first delve into that. How does the support for him, because many still support him, I'm not going to talk about the canceling part, because I think we, we focus too much on canceling the individual and not enough supporting the behavior. So how does supporting him through his behavior, almost unequivocally, how does that perpetuate abuse? I'm going to start with Michelle. Well, I think first and foremost, um, the support of his artistry is one thing, but recognizing that he has not gotten the type of rehabilitation and mental health support that he has needed throughout his career. And again, I could tie this back to Brittany. He is a commodity. There are a lot of people who are making money off turning a blind eye to this bad behavior. 15 years from now, we may look back and claim um, Chris Brown is just as problematic as a person like and abusive as a person like R. Kelly. But again, I will go back to the fact that these are people who have had traumatic experiences and have never healed from those traumatic experiences, therefore are uh, acting out in ways that they know how. There is, it has been reported Chris Brown came from abusive homes. We recognize in spaces of reproductive justice and social services that people who are exposed to abuse if they do not get the help that they need to process that abuse and heal from it, tend to have a higher propensity to become abusers themselves. Now, I am not here because I am not a psychologist. I am not here to delve into the ins and outs and in intricacies of what Chris Brown is dealing with. But I think that what we are doing, whether you support his music or not, because he's got great songs, um, can you separate the artist from their shortcomings? My hope is, is that someone will get him anger management, will get him into some type of ongoing mental health therapy um, that can help him really, really heal. We do not have enough of that in the black community and it doesn't matter how much money you have. And this is a great example of still not being able to have access to adequate care. Yes, and as the phrase goes, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people. And, yes, uh, Selena, I wanna go to you before getting to the next part of this question. What do you think we should do? Do you think we should stop listening to his music delete it from our, our, our uh, iPhones. What do you think is the proper response to this? That's a personal call for me. And I, I fully um, you know, support all of my friends, whether they identify as feminists or not, who say, you know, Chris Brown, Chris Brown is canceled in my book. Um, and, and I hear that and I understand that. However, I think the issue here, rather than just canceling or even like thinking about should he be canceled or not, is why is this so normalized, right? Chris Brown has so many young yep. female fans who continue to support him and defend him. And the reason why is because of patriarchy, uh, a lot of us have normalized this type of yeah. aggression and abuse to say like, okay, well, he's a really good artist. He makes great songs. And in order to be in proximity to someone of that magnitude, uh, you know, it's OK to take a hit here or there, whether that's literal or figurative. So I do think that we need to reeducate folks on what is normal and what is acceptable or not. Good point, Selena. This type of behavior has been too normalized. And that's why it's really important to talk about the behavior and and not just the individual. And I'm, I'm glad we're having that discussion. Now I want to move to the coverage. Right now, we are covering it. How do you think we should cover this going forward? Because it's it's a tricky thing, and, and we've talked about this. It's, it's like you want to cover it because these issues are important. As you said, this behavior is normalized. But on the other hand, covering it can give it more attention, can perpetuate it, can keep him relevant, maybe with the behavior, without the behavior, but it certainly keeps him relevant. How do you think we should, and as, as parts of the media, how do you think we should continue to cover uh, behavior from Chris Brown or other abusers? I'm going to start with you, Selena, then go to Michelle. 
It's a catch-22 because Chris Brown is getting all the coverage he can get because every, every time he drops an album, his last album went number one. So he gets all he gets a lot of coverage for his song and his artistry. So to turn a blind eye and to not cover the domestic abuse allegations and just that, that track record of violence that he has garnered over the last few years would be a disservice to the public. So yes, we need to cover it. We need to talk about it, but we need to understand who we're putting in place to talk about it. We need more advocates like Michelle who's here, who's a sexologist who works in domestic abuse in that space, and folks like you, Evan, who also talks about uh, toxic masculinity all the time. So if you, if the media is going to talk about it, make sure that you are talking about it and covering it from a position of, of education and not just feeding into the chaos and the frantic and, mm -hmm. and, you know, people just defending him. Definitely. And thank you for that, Selena. Michelle, what do you think? Well, I think there's a couple of things here. If we continue to put stories like Chris Brown's uh, headlines in the media, we continue to provide opportunities for us to talk more deeply about what intimate partner violence is, um, how it can be prevented, and what type of steps we need to take to create a real change. Uh, because I think when it comes to intimate partner violence, oftentimes people like to ask the questions, well, what did she do? The blame becomes and the onus of responsibility becomes that of the victim versus us really looking at what creates the predatory behavior. So for that, I think that it is something that we should continue to talk about. However, oftentimes these headlines become sensationalized and sometimes marginalized in an instance of being like, oh, Chris Brown's at it again instead of looking at what the root problem is, which is intimate partner violence, and how do we address that in our communities? I think it's also important, I just wanna throw this in there before we move on, that we can have two thoughts, right? Chris Brown is a hurt man who needs to be rehabilitated and there must be space mm -hmm. for that. He also abuses women and we must believe those women, have empathy for those women, and and want to live in a world where that behavior isn't normalized. I feel like too often we see those as teams and not mm -hmm. two thoughts we can hold together. Uh, I wanna now move on to um, Tamir Rice's uh, mother, Samaria Rice, who has called out Sean King. Now this is not the first time that Sean King has been called out uh, for mismanagement of funds, for the way he fundraises, but she specifically called him out for fundraising off son's death for also publicizing the conversations that they had and for saying something that other uh, other mothers um, of victims of violence, police violence have said, which is essentially that these leaders get to the forefront and not the, the survivors, the, the family members of these tragedies. And for those who don't remember, Tamir Rice, was a child who was shot by police for just holding a toy gun. Meanwhile, we see video upon video of adult white men with actual lethal weapons somehow uh, living unscathed. I want to get back to this and I want to get to it a little beyond Sean King. Um, I want to go directly to the purpose of leaders and activists because many times leaders and activists uh, within civil rights and within this movement, their role is to be at the forefront. How can a leader and activist be at the forefront, speak with these families, but not become what Samaria Rice is saying, not take the, the spotlight, not take you know all the attention? How can, what is the balance here that we think leaders should take? And is the criticism against Sean King uh, proper or is it misplaced? Uh, well, I'll start with, yeah, go ahead, Michelle. Well, here's the thing. I think that as somebody who has been on the front lines of marching and has organized with people, it is our duty as individuals who maybe people think we are um, influencers or we have some type of influence and some type of platform. It is not our voice. It is not our place to use our voices to speak for others. Rather, it is our place to utilize the platforms that we have to elevate the voices of those who have been victimized. Um, and that is important to stay um, 
centered in that and and really think about and this is kind of the 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 downside a lot of these individuals who are in the spotlight have not been trained in trauma-informed care so they do not know how to necessarily actively listen or engage with parents or people who have been victimized by violent crimes in an effort to help them craft their their voice and their stories. That's one. And two, oftentimes the people who have been are so busy doing the actual work um, that they don't have the platforms to provide these people with opportunity to tell their stories. So it is a very, very fine line, but it would be my hope that other influencers, other activists that do have platforms offer those platforms up, allowing people to speak in their own words versus making assumptions and or saying, I am doing this in the name of someone because it's what's right. Um, because that's kind of self-grandizing, I think. Thank you. So, Selena, how do you look at this line between activism and, and kind of opportunism that, that is being uh, alleged, alleged against some activists in this movement? Sorry about that. I do think there are a lot of clout chasers in the activism space, as well as every industry. Uh, people are opportunistic and they're going to try to take advantage um, and capitalize. But I, I feel like when it comes to, to Tamir Rice's mother's case and Sean King, I know that Tamir Rice's mom has called out a number of activists, high profile at that, Sean King, Tamika Mallory, etc. Um they had some type of conversation. I'm not sure if Sean King spoke to her before he publicized it. And if he didn't, I, I agree with her and that criticism because that's something that you don't do uh, unless they know this is on the record. Sean King is also a journalist and a reporter. So, and you know, it's just ethical to let folks know this is on the record, this will be used. We're not sure, right? We can only make assumptions because we don't know um, all the evidence here. But I, I will say that outside of that um, and the many criticism he gets and Tamika Mallory, I think some of it is valid. I think a lot of it is made up from the right wing and folks who aren't as you know well-researched in activism or just really familiar sometimes just jump on a bandwagon and, and say things when I do think that Sean King uses his platform mm -hmm. um, to elevate and amplify stories that don't get coverage. Uh, he's one of the first people to post uh, when it comes to mm -hmm. violent acts against black and brown communities. And he runs two organizations that are doing legitimate work in making sure that there are fair elections that are uh, electing folks that represents the needs of black and brown communities. So, you know, the, the if we're going to critique him and, and talk about him, then I think we need to, you know, look at look at it from a full yeah. circle. Yes, I, I completely agree. It's important to look at the full picture. And he also gets racist fired. Let's not forget that. He will stay on someone's face and says, give me this person's name. And day after day, he will say, give me this person's name. He has helped to locate uh, some people in the Charlottesville uh, riots as well. Um, I, I think that you both mentioned really good points. And again, we need to be able to hold multiple thoughts because someone can do great activism and do some harm. Both of these things can be true. I want to move on now to local news. We just had uh, an election, a municipal local election. I was a part of doing some of the ranked choice voting education. Of course, what's most in the news is the mayoral election. Currently, Eric Adams is in the lead. Now, Eric Adams was a captain in the NYPD. He has pledged police reform while also touting his credentials. Now, there's two things here. One is kind of a procedural thing, and one I will ask specifically about his candidacy. Procedurally, this is, this is a new type of dynamic for politicians where they can't really declare too much victory yet because there's over 120,000 votes that have not been opened because of BOE laws. And those votes can be applied to ranked choice voting, which I know we don't have much time. I'll just quickly say can influence other candidates who are behind in the race by giving second place votes that become now somebody's vote and can actually overtake someone in first if there's enough of them. So. Do you, does everyone here think that Eric Adams first is the next mayor of New York? 
or do we think that we need to wait and see for longer for this process to play out? Um, um, I'm opening this to the floor first. I think that the results from what I've seen is that he does have a lot of leeway and he is head um, in the race. However, obviously, every vote needs to be counted as it should before mm -hmm. an official um, declaration of the winner is declared. However, I will say one thing I found really, really interesting about how this election played out. Uh, Eric Adams, who have you mentioned, he ran on a platform of public safety. He's been criticized by progressives like AOC for wanting to increase police presence in the streets. He actually dominated areas by working in middle class black and Latino voters in places like central Brooklyn, southeast Queens and the Bronx. Whereas Maya Wiley, who I voted for, the progressive in this election, uh, she assembled large pockets in gentrified Brooklyn, Manhattan's East Village, Central Harlem and Northeastern Queens, right? And then lastly, we had Catherine Garcia. She was the former sanitation commissioner who uh, talked about her credentials as a crisis manager. She was able to get a lot of votes in, in Manhattan. I'm talking the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, Brownstone, Brooklyn, uh, and, and a, large, a lot of other white affluent uh, areas in New York City. So it, it pretty much tells the tale of three different voting blocks who they spoke to and who voted and whoever the next mayor is, their job is to somehow going to be to mayor, uh, regardless of the differences that we see here, they're going to have to try to unify. But I always say, make sure that we are elevating the most marginalized people and communities, because once they're taken care of, usually we're all taken care of. Thank you for that. And by the way, Eric Adams, I should say, has a 10-point lead just about over Maya Wiley. And the, the next round of ranked choice voting uh, results should be given at the end of this month. Uh, Michelle, what do you make of what Selena just said? Eric Adams was not the most progressive candidate, but he seems to be getting the most working class and uh, BIPOC uh, group of voters. Michelle, on mute. I think Michelle's on mute. I did it again. Well, you know, here's the deal. Eric Adams had a great marketing campaign. He had a great story. The idea that he was once a victim of police brutality, which drove him into his many years of service as a police officer is a very good story. Uh, I would say that some of the other candidates who wanted to tout the fact that the uh, the police unions were not backing him only added to the story that he was a progressive in the space of justice. But if you went on his website and you read uh, what he really wanted to do, he definitely wants to put a lot of money back into um, uh, policing. I think that that was all a political tactic to make him shine like glitter amongst uh, all of the other candidates. Uh, I, I personally think that Maya Wiley is a much better candidate suited for Congress uh, because of her progressive views. And when it comes to the nuts and bolts of being the mayor of a city, although last year with COVID and with um, with the racial uprising, we saw a lot of New York City's mayor on the TV screen. We don't usually see that. I think sometimes we have to consider um, what does it mean to be a mayor? You are a head of the municipality of the city. So I need my trash taken out. I need my roads fixed. I need my schools going well. And I need somebody that can do all of those things. Um, I think there was a lot of pomp and stance in this year's uh, mayoral election because of the climate of our society, especially here in New York City. We will see what happens. I am a little bit concerned because I think that Eric Adams is much more conservative than what we have been led to believe, but only time will tell. Thank you for that, Michelle and Selena. And I am honored to do the last news roundup of the Be Heard season. So thank you and I'm throwing it back to you. Thank you, Evan. Now, before we start to unpack Devik Chauvin's sentence, I need to talk about some of the stories that made me say, really? this past week. First off, Ted Cruz is being a manic once again, but this is no surprise. I often talk about the lunacy that is the Republican Party, and this week is no different. The Texas senator and resident crisis vacationer introduced a bill to ban federal funding for critical race theory teaching in the workplace. 
Now, this is just the latest attack on the academic tool meant to teach that race is a social construct and that it is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but something that is also embedded in legal systems and policies. Now, it's crystal clear why Cruz and his party want to block critical race theory, but do they really believe that trying to erase it will somehow remedy the oppression that Black folks have endured over the past 400 years we've had? Really? Secondly, Michael Bay Jordan. Like, I love me some Michael but he got dragged this past week. Twitter and Trinidad were very vocal that the New Jersey-born bread actor debuted his new rum, which was named Juve. Now, people quickly accused the African-American actor of cultural appropriation, and rightfully so. Juve is a historic day of remembrance and celebration in the Caribbean. It's also the start of Carnival on the Monday preceding Lent. Now, although Michael B. Jordan said he wanted to honor the history behind the term, we must be careful when using words to brand and or sell American products. Appropriation, regardless of the source, is still one of the lowest regards for culture. Really, do we need to go over the basics again? I hope not. And now lastly, Texas Governor Greg Abbott pledged $250 million in state funds to build a Texas-Mexico border wall, and he is soliciting funds to fund the rest of it. Now, that $250 million would be much better spent in spaces that actually need the resources. Texas, like many states, would could use better infrastructure, better school systems, better healthcare, and roads. Really, what part of the puzzle are we missing here? And now, to conclude that, I'm gonna throw it back over to Michelle to make something that doesn't make sense, hopefully make a little sense. Absolutely, thanks, Selena. So let's face it, everybody, the housing market right now is on fire. And unfortunately, if you are a buyer, that could be problems, but is, designer redlining happening with a new thing called pocket listings and or whisper listings. Pocket listings are known as listings that don't really ever go on the market. Rather, they are marketed to potential buyers without a uh, real estate contract until a buyer has been identified. And whisper listings never actually hit the market. So while some see this as something that has been beneficiary during the pandemic, when people don't want other people in the homes, oftentimes this practice is reserved for the more affluent and more wealthy, allowing realtors to hold on to select properties, not putting them on the market, therefore identifying key buyers that they think should buy the property. Now, listen, we understand that buying a home is really important because property taxes is what pays for schools. So everybody looks for homes in neighborhoods that have great schools, and that is directly attached to the prices of the home selling. Well, at this time, we know in the last month, the housing market has housing sales have fallen about 5.9% lower than listed from April to May. Now, going on with that, the median home price is up 18.1% from a year ago. In addition to that, we are seeing large uh, venture capitalist firms like BlackRock out there buying up homes. But what does this mean? It means that the opportunity for the average citizen to buy a home is starting to dwindle away, just like all of the other American dreams we have been sold growing up. For the second straight month, a decline in sales by the Commerce Department stated this an indication that the tailwind from COVID-19 might be leveling off. So perhaps there is a chance these housing market prices will go down. But when you consider the median housing price in America is a little over 300,000, that oftentimes puts individuals out and prices them out of the buyer's market. So what I would advise is be wise to those of you who are selling your home. While a pocket listing might sell your home faster, you might not be getting all the money that you would want. In addition to that, 
if you find a home or know of a home on the market, do not be a afraid to contact your local real estate agent because there are actually laws that prevent this just like the fair housing act of 1968 lenders cannot discriminate uh housing loans to people based on race neither should real estate agents be able to hold on to homes throwing off the national index of homes available uh, to sell to a certain type of client and with that I will leave it with you to see if it makes sense. Selena? Thank you so much, Michelle, for making that make sense. Definitely appreciate uh, the breakdown there. Now, without further ado, it's time to address the headlining story of today's show, which again is Derek Chauvin's Judgment Day. How long is the sentence for justice? Now, 22 and a half years, that's the sentence the former police officer received for the murder of George Floyd last year, which sparked a global movement calling for police reform. At 45 years old, Chauvin would be 67 if he was to serve out his full sentence. However, it's likely he'll serve 15 years behind bars before he's released. The maximum sentence under Minnesota law was 40 years in prison, but the prosecution team requested 30 years for Chauvin. Chauvin's defense attorney, however, asked for probation and time served, arguing that Derek Chauvin has a lack of criminal history and is a product of, I quote, a broken system. Now, during the hearing, Chauvin made a brief statement expressing condolences to the family of George Floyd. But then he made this eerie remark where he said, like, oh, there's more to come. I don't even know what he meant by that. Let's play the clip. Uh, Mr. Chauvin, th this is your opportunity, if you wish, to uh, give any input to the court. And so I turn it over to you and your attorney. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, at this time, due to some additional legal matters at hand, I'm not able to give a full formal statement at this time. Um, but very briefly, though, I uh, do want to give my condolences to the Floyd family. Um, there's going to be some other information in the future that would be of interest. And uh, I hope things will give you some, some peace of mind. Thank you. Right. And then his mother, she came on and made a statement on behalf of the family where she said her son is, I quote, a quiet, thoughtful, honorable and selfless man. Right. Such a, a sweet son to kill somebody on camera. Let's play the clip. I am the mother of Derek Chauvin. I am here to speak on behalf of my entire family. On November 25th. 2020, not only did Derek's life change forever, but so did mine and my family's. Derek devoted 19 years of his life to the Minneapolis Police Department. It has been difficult for me to hear and read what the media, public, and prosecution team believe Derek to be an aggressive, heartless, and uncaring person. I can tell you that is far from the truth. My son's identity has also been reduced to that as, of, that as a racist. I want this court to know that none of these things are true and that my son is a good man. Nonetheless, District Judge Peter A. Cahill handed him a 2.5 year prison sentence, making Chauvin only the second police officer in Minnesota history to be jailed for an on-duty murder and just one of eight officers nationwide convicted of murdering someone on duty since 2005, while with sentences ranging from six years to life. So I see you guys going off in the comment section. Uh, Rodelia 
Wright said via LinkedIn, narcissism at its best. Yeah, to be totally disconnected to the tragedy that not only the George Floyd family is feeling, but the world is definitely narcissistic. And then Michael R. Haisler says, uh, not enough justice, meaning uh, 22 years, uh, 22.5 years is not enough. Now, without further ado, I want to invite Shavar Jeffries into the conversation. Again, Shavar Jeffries is, was the assistant attorney general for the state of New Jersey. He is also a civil rights attorney. And this is his second appearance on the show. So thanks so much for hanging out with us, Shavar. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Shavar, was 22 and a half years an appropriate sentence for Derek Chauvin? I don't think so. Uh, I think he should have at, at least received the 30 years that the prosecution uh, called for. Uh, you know, I think somewhere in that 30 to 40 range would have been more appropriate. Um, I didn't expect that to happen, um, just given the experience around uh, police involved shootings, particularly police involved shootings of black people. Um, anything near true justice tends to be um, a, qu a quixotic sort of endeavor. Um, so I was I was hopeful we would get something above 20 years. So in the context of what we've seen in this country when it comes to these types of killings, um, that was a type of partial justice. But of course, we want full justice. We don't want to continue to be in this partial justice space because without full justice really don't have justice. Um, so it could have been much worse. I believe it should have been 30 years or more. That would have been uh, more justice and something close to justice in my judgment, uh, particularly when you uh, take into consideration what you put on the table, Selena, that in Minnesota, after serving two thirds of a sentence, uh, an individual is eligible for parole. Um, and so after 15 years, uh, Chauvin can be back on the streets. I think that's very problematic. We should have had a sentence above 30 years in my judgment. Absolutely. So if you remember Amber Geyer, she was a police officer who shot Boham, uh, Boham Jean in his own home while he was eating ice cream. She was sentenced to just 10 years in prison. And then you had that Chicago police officer who shot 16 year old Laquan McDonald while he was walking away. He was sentenced to seven years behind bars. So if we look at it from that perspective, uh, you know, uh, Derek Chauvin's case was his prison sentence is double or a triple what we've seen in recent years when it comes to police killing unarmed uh, or innocent uh, black folks. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the in the in the context of the ways in which there's been almost little to no accountability for these type of killings of black people. Um, who are unarmed and involved in nonviolent circumstances. Uh, this is at the very high end. To be frank, in most of these cases, the officer isn't even charged in the first place before you even talk about a conviction and a sentence. Um, and so in that context, the fact that Chauvin was immediately terminated, immediately charged, convicted, and again, convicted of second degree murder. In many of these cases, if there's any conviction, and there's rarely a conviction to be clear, it tends to be a manslaughter type offense. So for him to be convicted of second degree murder and then to receive a sentence over 20 years, in the context of what we generally have seen, this is very much on the high end, still not justice in my judgment. We want to keep track of that so that so that we don't uh, become uh, accepting of something less than justice. But in that broader historical context, there's no question that this is on the high end of the consequences we've seen in these type of cases. Absolutely. Uh, Evan and Michelle, I definitely want to get your voices in here as well. Uh, Evan, what was your reaction to the sentencing? Were you surprised or not? Uh, as mentioned, I was surprised just simply based on the lack of accountability that police have been given. They've been almost able to uh, operate with impunity, as Shavar mentioned. Like, it is rare to even get an indictment. Remember, uh, Pantale Officer Pantaleo didn't even get any prison time for the murder of Eric Garner, which was also uh, a suffoc suffocating a man under duress for a long period of time. So this almost looks arbitrary. And that's my concern. It's like, sure, Derek Chauvin could have gotten this, but that could have been just one judge in one system. There... This all seemed arbitrary because the value of black life, especially in police shootings, just simply is not there. So that's my concern. And I, I am much more interested right now to see what do the other officers get who just watched while this happened? Because I think that will be especially a deterrent if they at least get some prison time. So 
Michael R. Hensler left a comment via LinkedIn. Michael says, Black American life has always been treated as less than. This is just a new start. Michelle, I want to get your thoughts on the sentences. Were you surprised and do you feel satisfied that he was handed a 22.5 year prison sentence? I think Michelle is on mute. So unprofessional, I apologize, but <laughs> Sunday, you know, um, a couple things here. One, there are still two cases pending uh, that Derek Chauvin will and could potentially be charged on. And I'm wondering if they will serve consecutively after this particular uh, sentence. Um, and if that is the case, we may see him get a lot more time. Do I think 22.5 years is enough time to... Uh, um, to to make up for life lost? Absolutely not. Do I think that this person used power in a way that was um, detrimental to community members? There was a child during that sentencing hearing who said, we have to call the police on the police. And when a child says that because they're witnessing something so reprehensible, I think that that speaks to the distrust that policing culture has created in America. That's one. Two, I would like to comment on some of the statements that um, Derek Chauvin's mother said. There was absolutely no remorse for um, the Derek, uh, George Floyd's family. There was no remorse for community members. It was all about how amazing her son was, which I don't know about your special hugs, but I am concerned. Uh, that this person had been fostered in an environment where they're, uh, they're, they were the center, where they were um, never did any wrong. Um, and this person has a, has a history of violence. I think that had this person stayed on the force, they would have continued uh, to be a problem. I think that there are probably a lot of officers like that. Even Derek Chauvin's ex-wife, Kelly Chauvin, made a statement through her attorney in which she said she is devastated uh, by Mr. Floyd's death and her utmost sympathy lies with his family, with his loved ones, and with everyone who is grieving this tra tragedy. And she did file for divorce uh, about three days after Chauvin was arrested. Now, to go back to the mother, to not even acknowledge that speaks volumes to the type of environment that that person was probably raised in. I had a conversation with my mother and if I was a parent, I was like, ah, and I had been Derek Chauvin's uh, mother. I would have gotten on the stand and said, listen, this man did wrong. And my heart is broken for the family of George Floyd, George Floyd's mother, his daughter, his friends, his cousins, and everybody that was grieving. To not acknowledge that I think speaks volumes uh, in regard to this idea of him being a superior to. But I am most interested in a couple things. One, seeing if these other cases that are pending will have consecutive sentences after this one. And two, I think that overall, this speaks to the importance that you call your senators, you call your Congress people, and you demand that we pass the George Floyd Justing and Policing Act that would remove qualified immunity for all police nationwide. That is the only way we will see change because we absolutely have to change the systems. We've done the demonstration. We must now take it to legislation. Absolutely, Michelle, thank you so much for that. I know a LinkedIn user left a comment that we wanted to highlight Let's go to the LinkedIn user. LinkedIn user says it shows the system that allows white people to raise violent people then claim to be a victim. White okay. privilege at its best there. Shavar, you know, I mentioned at the, the top of this segment how in the past 16 years, just nine law enforcement officers have been sentenced to prison terms after being convicted of murdering someone on the job. Why is it so hard to prosecute, convict and sentence a cop? Yeah, many, many reasons. Number one is there is a very close part relationship between prosecutors and police. Um, they're generally on, if you will, the same team. I mean, they work, to, they work together on a day in and day out basis in terms of law enforcement, which are of course very discriminatory and racist beyond the most uh, uh, virulent illustrations we see when, when, when black people are killed. But just to ordinarily 
over arrest, over prosecution, over sentencing, over conviction of black and brown people. That's the kind of day to day ways in which the system operates. Police and prosecutors work very, very closely day in and day out. And so, so they're highly likely to give the police the benefit of the doubt. Another challenge you have is that the police, obviously, there's a blue wall of silence where uh, police are very reticent and almost never uh, will testify against one another, which is precisely why the only time you see any type of charge is when there's independent video evidence, right? If, you, if anybody saw, if anybody hasn't read it, read the initial press release from Minneapolis after George Floyd was murdered before the video came out, right? Um, and at that point, there wasn't any desire to investigate into what had happened because they were just taking the reports from the police officers. When the video showed what really happened, we saw a very different type of response. So the challenges are related to the very close, if not in ancestral relationship uh, between police and prosecutors, um, which is exacerbated by what's called the blue, law, uh, the blue wall of silence, where police are very reticent uh, to testify to one another. So if there isn't a video, because independent witnesses will not have credibility with most prosecutors in, in, react, in, in response to the testimony of a police officer. So unless there isn't hard video evidence, and thank goodness we have body cameras now, uh, you will not see these sort of prosecutions. Evan, I want to get your thoughts back into the conversation. Ultimately, do you think justice has been served for George Floyd? I, I know you mentioned there are other three people who were uh, compliant yeah. and uh, held accountable for the for his death. Is justice being served? I mean, it, there's there's two realms here. I think it's important whatever helps the Floyd family feel some semblance of, of healing and justice, I support. So if they felt something from this, I'm not going to downgrade that because their healing is paramount right now. In the macro sense of any black and brown person uh, and their interactions with the police, I don't think arbitrary justice is justice. And the reason I said that before is because there's too much of a discrepancy. It maybe it happens here. It can it can the, almost the exact same circumstances can happen, and it won't be the same. As Shavar mentioned, half of this comes down to more than half. Is there a camera? That's what this comes down to. If there's not a camera, then is there anything close to justice? So all these factors. The, the threshold for Black Lives to Matter and these police uh, accountability proceedings, it shouldn't be based on such a random variable as is if there's a camera. So I'm not convinced in the macro sense, but I'm happy in the, at least in the personal sense that someone was held accountable for an unprecedented length of time in comparison to other police sentencings for the murder of this man. Michelle, you know, a few moments ago, you were mentioning some solutions and next steps and moving forward from here. What needs to be done to transform the institution of policing? Well, quite frankly, and I've said this amongst friends, we really need to re dismantle and, and radically reimagine what policing looks like. Across the nation, most officers uh, to go into the academy only need a GED or a high school diploma. Um, I am a firm believer that we need to incentivize um, continued education for officers. I am a proponent of designing programs in which incentivize police officers to go and get their masters in social work, in mental health counseling, in um, organizational leadership skills in a way that can help them be more human. Um, and I do think that the very baseline has to be passing the justice in police or George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, because once we can remove qualified immunity, there becomes a bigger burden to those officers um, in which to be held accountable and liable for uh, the mistakes or the accidents that they are responsible for because they are really large leaders and are here to well, although they say protect and serve, uphold the law. So I think there just needs to be a lot more accountability and we really need to dismantle the system and radically redesign it. So Aquarium One left a comment via YouTube 
Okarian says, it was obvious the judge did not want to be the person delivering the sentence to Chauvin. At least 30 years minimum should have been the sentence. As we move forward, Shavar, I want to get your thoughts on where do we go from here to honor the legacy of George Floyd and to make sure that we're not going through the same exact predicament a few months or years from now? I think the key is building upon some of the ideas Michelle uh, has put on the table um, in terms of radically reimagining policing. We need police to do dramatically less. Uh, so recent studies show that about 80% um, of police and prosecutorial resources are used to enforce misdemeanors. And of course, that's what we even had with George Floyd. We saw, um, we've seen uh, the whole range of it. Uh, we've seen people selling loose cigarettes. Uh, we've seen a whole range of kind of nonviolent matters where we don't need police. I think that's the fundamental issue. If we can get police out of that 80% of stuff that they're doing right now, which are nonviolent issues, some involve drugs, where you can send a mental health counselor, there, it wasn't necessary to bring an armed, to send an armed agent of the state to go engage a, a uh, claim that George Floyd was passing a counterfeit dollar bill, right? So we need to, to totally reimagine criminal punishment. There's a whole range of rules where we don't need uh, incarceration and imprisonment and armed agents of the state to enforce. I think that's at the foundation. If we have police do dramatically less and for the issue and focus them on violence, on crimes of violence or where there is an ongoing violent situation, that may be the situation where you need to send somebody with a gun. Almost everything else you can send unarmed agents of the state. There's a there's a series of rules we may not need to criminalize at all. There's some you can make civil, right, where you can get a fine or you can uh, take civil, have other civil consequences. I think the foundation of it all, which is connected to our history of racism, is that we have a very punitive criminal punishment system where the kind of default orientation is to have a criminal sanction enforced by an armed agent of the state versus having a much more targeted approach, which is what we see in most countries throughout the world. So if we can move more in that direction. We could focus police on the narrow and discrete set of circumstances that require a person with a gun, the overwhelming majority of these other instances, if we need an agent of the state to respond, we can have unarmed professionals who may have the social work background Michelle talked about, they may have the mental health uh, background that may be necessary in those situations, or maybe even be a substance abuse counselor for those who may have a substance abuse challenge or whatever else the case may be. Absolutely. Well, I want to just say thank you so much, Shavar, for chiming into this discussion and the work that you're doing to make active change. Uh, Michelle and Evan as well, thank you so much. I do want to just end this particular sentence, I mean, segment by saying this. The sentence for me was disappointing, um, you know, because you take into account all of the Black people who were hung raped, oppressed, shot, killed, whether by a police officer or a white vigilante, it just, justice will never be served, right? Or, or at least the way I envision justice. However, I do think that we can make the world more just for future generations. And that includes doing all the steps that Michelle, Shavar, and Evan just advocated for, and especially when it comes to uh, pushing for the George Floyd Policing Act. That is the least thing we could do by making sure that we petition, call our senators, and continue to march in these streets. Remember, the only reason why Derek Chauvin was convicted and sentenced, if you ask me, is because the whole world rallied against around it and uh, against him and called for change and called for accountability. This is just the first step. We have to keep that same energy if we want to continue to protect the most marginalized communities and black and brown folks in this country. And on that note, let me just add also, uh, we didn't get a chance to really uh, get into it, but we have to end qualified immunity as well and hold police accountable. So Again, thank you so much for joining us, Javar, uh, for this conversation. And now, without further ado, we are actually going to end this show on a positive note with Black Women Rise. So this week, we are honoring Shakiri Richardson. In a short time, we have all met Shakiri. We've fallen deeply in love with her and her bubbly, free personality, as well as her entire aesthetic, the nails, the hair, the lashes, and her vulnerability. 
Shikari Richardson rose to fame in 2019 as a freshman at Louisiana State University, running 10.75 seconds to break the 100-meter record at the National Collegiate Athletic Association Championships. And now at just 21 years old, Shikari is just one of the latest athletes to secure a spot in a tournament at the 2021 Tokyo Olympic Games. Plus, this past month, she was dubbed as the world's fastest woman at the Olympic trials. So Shikari, we see you. Keep shining. Keep rising. You are black girl magic, and we are rooting for you. And on that note, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to another episode of Be Her Talk with Selena Hill. Remember to support us at buymeacoffee.com slash Talk. Your support will help us to support the issues and the causes that you care about. And also, I just want to add again, we are going on a summer hiatus, but don't worry. We will be back in a few weeks. So continue to be heard. Make a statement. Be bold, be audacious, and make the change that we want to see. See you next time.